You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Hi, it's Noah Rosenfarb here with another episode of our Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Today's guest is Terry Freeman. Terry is a longtime energy services, construction, and maintenance executive, investor, and board director. He's got a depth of experience in mergers and acquisitions of companies from $20 million to $2 billion. So uh, Terry's a great guest for all of you listeners who are thinking about what your eventual exit might look like. And for those advisors, uh, two owners of companies, Terry's got great experience and great stories, so we're happy he's here to share them with us today. Thanks so much, Terry, for getting on the call. Thanks for having me, Noah. Great. So uh, let's jump right into it, Terry, and maybe talk to our listeners about you know a story that you think would be valuable to them. Maybe you could start with um, you know the, the kind of the biggest deal you've did you've done, and what what that happened in in that course of uh, events, and what you did right, and what you would have done different if you're able to go back in time. Sure. Well, the, the biggest company I've been involved in building uh, was Flint Energy Services. And we started that uh, really in 1992 when I joined a, a private company that was doing roughly $20 million a year in revenue and uh, built it into a $2 billion public business through a series of acquisitions and private equity backing from a, a U.S.-based uh, private equity firm that specializes in energy services. So what was intriguing about that uh, and, you know, probably the biggest mistake we made at times was just the pace we went at it. At times we probably moved too quickly, at times too slowly, um, and it's really kind of finding your pace of what you're comfortable with and having an organization that can perhaps leap ahead of where you're going to be rather than trying to catch up uh, constantly through that process. We probably did you know, almost 35 acquisitions over a 10-year period, so we were constantly busy and often trying to uh, catch up on our infrastructure to accommodate what we were buying next. It was a lot of fun, but a lot of challenge. So uh, one of the things I've noticed about people who are in the serial acquisition business, you know, growing their companies, is that they tend to notice a lot of common mistakes that the owners have made of their acquiring firms. You know, either their failure to prepare a variety of ways that the owners didn't capture more value uh, and that the acquirer probably would have paid more had the owner done a few things. What would you say out of those 35 acquisitions, were there any common themes of things that the owners had done poorly where they could have probably got more money? out of you had they spent some time well you're exactly right no I think the biggest fault we all have uh, when we're selling businesses is recognizing that the buyers buying it for what it is tomorrow not what it was yesterday so quite often we end up with 
advisors or others who are solely focused on an EBITDA history track probably don't spend enough time on normalizations and really understanding maybe what was an anomaly in operations and also where that business is headed. Um, you know, what what is the growth profile? Why is that really achievable? And, you know, why should the, the buyer pay a higher multiple based on an EBITDA projection that is substantially better than what history has been? So those are the things I would focus on. The other side, the piece of it would be the uh, lack of identification of addressable market. One thing smaller businesses tend to either avoid or don't have knowledge on is, is, is just the size of their market and where they participate. So are they a 5% market share with a great fair way to growth or are they an 80% market share where probably they're going to get eroded over time? A buyer wants to know those kinds of things and typically that's hard information to get particularly in construction and maintenance type sectors. Um, so people tend to just ignore it or, uh, you know, carry on without that level of detail. So uh, do you feel as an acquirer you were often getting great value because the the sellers weren't prepared? Um, I don't know if often would be um, the right word, but I'd say, yes, uh, you can – you definitely do get better value when the when the uh, seller is not fully prepared uh, and hasn't had a professional approach to preparing information. And so, as, advantage a, as, for a, the buyer. as an acquirer, what were some of the things that you did and 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 ways that you looked at potential acquisition targets and and maybe combined with that, what were some of the deals that you said no to? Why what was there a common theme among the owners where you had to say no and took a pass? The biggest no really came down to organizational fit and the strength of the second tier of management. So quite often an entrepreneur will find it difficult to fit into a bigger organization where they're not calling all the shots. So and the, the, the piece that lots of our guys didn't like was they couldn't make CapEx decisions any longer because there was a consolidated CapEx budget and they couldn't go out and buy every piece of equipment that they wanted. I always referred to it as yellow iron fever in a lot of the construction businesses that we're involved in. So where we saw guys that couldn't adapt to a change in their level of control, we would pass. Um, Also, if they didn't have any kind of training in succession where if the owner got hit by a bus, that the business would collapse, then um, we were probably less interested. Not quite as relevant as you get bigger in size and you have organizational depth as an acquirer that um, you can inject into a business, but then you're not going to pay up for that either. Uh, if you have to be supportive and, and drive change and growth and the organization can't support that on its own, then you'll probably pay less. So t- tell me about your eventual sale of Flint and what was what prompted that? You know, was did the money need to get back to the investors, or, or was there another reason? And how was that process? Well, it actually was a multiple stage process. Uh, we went public in 2001 through a reverse takeover process, uh, so there wasn't a lot of liquidity at that time. Um, the company we bought was thinly traded. And uh, it took some time to build up into a real uh, sound public business. So it was several years later in 2005 where we uh, went to the market and raised capital um, to do some uh, further acquisitions and a secondary offering for some of the long-term shareholders that we created that liquidity event at that stage. Then we became more of a real uh, 
full trading public entity. So liquidity was at the option of the holder uh, after that time period. And eventually, a much larger uh, public construction business, uh, URS, bought Flint Lock, Stock and Barrel in 2012 primarily for access to the energy services construction market, uh, as well as the oil sands um, in Alberta. And that was the ultimate liquidity event. And and, uh, do you still maintain an active role with URS, or or were you uh, liquidated in that also? Um, I was, uh, at that point, I was a board member, and the board was liquidated, and um, that was that. It was was over. (laughs) Was it a fun ride? It was a very fun ride. For me, it was almost 20 years from investing in the original private company in 1992 uh, through fruition. And it was great to see a lot of people mature and grow. And, you know, I think about one of my uh, colleagues that started cleaning equipment in the in the back 40 at our original shop and now runs a business unit that's almost a billion dollars. Um, so, I, you know, the M&A strategy, while it often gets criticized as being unsuccessful and, and destroying shareholder value, can actually be pretty uh, accretive if you do it well. And so what patience. would you say were some of those keys to doing it well for the, the listeners on the call that are thinking, you know, about their eventual exit, but like this concept of I'll buy people at a 3x multiple and I'll sell it at a 6x multiple, you know. <laughs> uh, you got to love the, the arbitrage is awesome if you can get it. Um, right. So that does come with scale. So, you know, you can get a larger turn if you actually create something that's either in somebody's way or has a more meaningful market position than where you start. So that's part of the equation. The other thing is to really stick to your macro thesis uh, through thick and thin. So understand what your business is. Don't get distracted by adding on a whole bunch of different pieces that don't really fit with your core and become hard to manage. Um, and and just really focus on being excellent at what your, your primary thesis is. That's good advice. Uh, maybe you could share some more stories. I know uh, you and I had kind of exchanged some information about Elite Camp. Maybe you could tell our listeners what happened there and, and what some lessons learned were. Sure. Um, Elite, um, we invested in through a, a private equity firm I was a, a partner in, and it had really two business lines at the start, um, very small entities, um, you know, management that was quite entrepreneurial, but really had a difficult time growing. And it was a theme we saw in many of the small investments we made through Northern Plains. There was a, while people might have had a good business idea and believed that they could support growth, they really didn't have the skill set to manage additional people and, you know, double and triple and quadruple the size of a business. So in that case, we had to change out management. Uh, We sold one of the divisions, which was a what I refer to as a dumb iron equipment business, and focused solely on the on the business we were good at, which was remote accommodations. Brought in some management from competitors that uh, took it to another level. Um, and I think the lesson learned there is that sometimes you have to be prepared to pay up um, and make people whole when they can uh, leapfrog your company ahead a level. And that's what we did in that case. And it really paid off well because we had strong operational leadership and grew the business from, you know, roughly a a $9 million top line to almost 40 at the point of sale. 
and uh, we're able to really package that up with an additional growth profile because we understood specifically what that business was. Uh, so all the things about staying disciplined, staying focused on the, uh, the thesis, and really understanding where you were in the market and uh, where you could capture growth uh, paid off for us in the long run. So one one of the uh, unique things I heard there is, um, you know, investing money that some people might consider high risk as a sole business owner or, you know, a founder of a company in talent. And I think private equity firms, for the most part, at least those that are successful, have recognized what, what you described, and that is, you know, you got to pay to play and, and have the team that you need that, uh, for the next three years and not the team that you needed for the last three years. So do you find that uh, owners that might be struggling with, you know, their existing management team and uh, the, the kind of investment that they need to put into the company to hire the right talent to help them get to that next stage, that they're great private equity candidates? They are, uh, as long as they're willing to um, accept advice and recognize that they have to augment their team. You know, loyalty is a, is a great thing, but you also have to accept that maybe your long-term players that got you to a certain level can't take you beyond that level and that they have to perhaps find a different role or be you know, ring-fenced in some duties. And that's sometimes hard for an entrepreneur. So as long as you have that very frank discussion up front about talent and about perhaps being uh, in the necessity of augmenting talent, um, I think that works. The other thing that's important as a private equity sponsor is that you have at least some representation within your firm that's had operational experience. You know, the, the things I've seen that go sideways are where you know, you're a pure financial buyer and you don't really have an appreciation for what it takes to make a business work. And you get so focused on EBITDA, or return on capital, or all the things that eventually turn into value that you forget about the fact that there's a thousand people out there trying to drive that number every day and uh, that the number doesn't happen without the people performing. Yeah. So did you have a similar experience at McCoy? What what happened there? Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about that story? Sure. Well, McCoy is is a public company, uh, which I sit on the board of, um, and it, you know, in that particular instance, and this part of the story is, is all public, you know, we really helped to narrow the focus. Um, it was kind of a, uh, <laughs> the one board member, I, I like his reference, it's, he calls McCoy now a complex pure play relative to a historical conglomerate that it was. Hmm. And um, we got rid of a lot of extraneous businesses that were low margin and not contributing much to earnings. So the market and analysts now really understand the story. Uh, and it's become a, a real pure play drilling products business uh, in manufacturing that uh, has gone up tr- substantially in value through subtraction. So we, we got rid of a, a, a big part of top line that didn't contribute, and we actually saw an increase in the share price. Uh, McCoy continues to be a, a public company, and uh, you know we've brought on a number of of uh, U.S.-based people in Houston that um, have really taken it to another level as well. So both the investment in talent and the focus on pure play have really helped that business. And and uh, was there a founder involved in the company as you did these divestitures? 
Um, not in the McCoy situation. Uh, McCoy's been around for 100 years, and it's been public since 95. So, so the uh, management, you know, I don't the founders know if you've seen are long gone. The, uh, the, the track of divesting out of low margin or unprofitable business lines, you know, I think is something that outsiders often can visualize and articulate to ownership. But if the owners were integral in the creation of those business lines, you know, they, they often have a, a bit of, I don't want to get rid of my baby. Um, you know, did you have that at McCoy at all, even though no one was particularly, uh, you know, the, the birth father of any of those business lines? Um Maybe a little bit, because the CEO had actually run several of the businesses, so he had an appreciation for them, but uh, fundamentally really believed in the strategy of getting to a pure play situation. So we didn't have a lot of pushback. Yeah. And as a buyer of businesses, I really look for those kinds of opportunities where you see something non-core you know, to a conglomerate or a, a public company that... Um, maybe isn't getting any love and isn't going to get any future capital to grow, those things can be great buys too. Yeah. Uh, so walk me through your your, um, your iron story, Iron Derrickman. Iron Derrickman was interesting because it's an illustration of when's the right time to sell and when's the right time to try and drive value. So the people that started Iron Derrickman were great, innovative people who developed a, a really cool technology to handle pipe uh, in a drilling operation that was far safer and and more productive than what was done historically. But they were not manufacturers. So they had a number of prototypes working in the field. Their next step would have been to actually run their own manufacturing business uh, or third-party it and try and manage it that way. But they recognized they didn't have that skill set internally. Great engineers, but knew nothing about how to uh, do that part of the business. So the decision was made to sell it at, at that stage uh, by demonstrating the potential in the market and putting it in the hands of a business that um, had manufacturing, knew how to do that well, and could take it to that next level and recognized the value they would create through that process, um, partially in an earnout and partially in um, an upfront payment. So. In that case, we really minimized the risk of failure in a in a part of the business the management wasn't strong at, and got off it perhaps earlier than it ultimately became uh, uh, truly profitable. So when you you look at that kind of situation and owners that are uh, listening to our call, you know they may be thinking, oh, you know I don't I don't want to sell yet. I've got to implement this. I've got to implement that. I don't want to sell too soon. What advice do you have for them about timing? And, and how to find that right timing. I think if you try and sell right at the top of the market, you will often fail because that buyer still wants to know that there's a fair way for growth. So if that's your, your objective to get to the absolute peak of earnings, uh, that's going to be a very, thing, hard, very hard thing to drive the value you think you're worth. In our business, energy services, it's, it's very cyclical. So... When you think about timing and creating value, if you can eliminate as much cyclicality as you can through constant revenues and relationships with customers that allow you to say, okay, I'm not going to go completely in the ditch like my competitors or other uh, other entities in this space, you can drive more value that way too. 
so maybe your timing revolves around having signed a master service agreement with a customer that gives you a longer term perspective on revenues and you've got a you know a five year window that you can demonstrate as opposed to saying, okay, I'm on the last six months of my relationship with that customer and I haven't re-signed yet. So those are the kind of things I'd pay attention to in trying to, to drive value in the particular sector that we operate in. Yeah, just uh, I want to pick up on one of your comments. You know, we created an ebook. So for those of our listeners that are interested, you could go on, uh, on my corporate website, which is uh, freedomexit.com, and download uh, 53 value factors. And, and you know, you mentioned these um, uh, service agreements, which is one of the 53 value factors that we describe to owners different ways that they could create value in their company. And sometimes it's through, you know, things that could be simple to implement if you just knew that they were important, like a service agreement with one of your supply suppliers or your customers. Uh, so, Terry, maybe you could continue the conversation around, you know, talking to your employees. And one of the ways that, you know, owners during these 35 acquisitions that you did or when you deployed private equity money into 19 different companies, you know, how did you counsel owners to talk to their management team and to talk to their employees around their exit and, and their you know in, involvement of you and your company? That's a very uh, intriguing question because typically the owner of a private business won't want his his, his, his employees getting distracted because quite often it'll have a big impact on performance. Um, so. You either have to go completely tight hole where you're not disclosing anything and you know doing due diligence off-site if you can, or you have to open up and kind of embrace the situation. I'm involved in one business right now that's going through an exit process, and they've been very upfront with the employee base, and what they've told them is, for the long-term success of this business, we need a different shareholder base. And that might be private equity. It might be uh, being involved in a larger public company. Uh, but really, the shareholder base we have now needs to exit. They're not prepared to support the business with the kind of growth profile we think we can take it to. Therefore, we're going to make a change in ownership. It won't affect your day-to-day job. It won't affect uh, your compensation. It won't affect many of the things that uh, impact your well-being. But that's what we're going to do. And so we're in that process. So being upfront about that takes away a lot of the, the rumor mongering and the um, you know difficult conversations that people have and they usually project the worst. Um, so that quite often lets the air out of the balloon uh, around some of those issues. I would say in probably 90% of the businesses we acquired, we did see a degradation in results in the quarter after the deal closed. Because when you're buying smaller businesses, typically you're using a lot of the management resources that typically are focused on execution through due diligence, um, through negotiation, through all of those time-consuming processes you have to look after when a deal is being done. So quite often you will have an issue uh, around um, execution, maybe in the couple of months prior to close and then the quarter afterwards. Everybody's tired. The other sensitive situation is around customers. Um, And in the end, most of the feedback we got doing customer due diligence where you go out and visit the, the key customers for anything you're acquiring 
was as long as I still see, you know, Joe or Jill across the table after the deal closes and you're not changing my pricing, I don't care who owns it. I just want my service delivered. Um, and I think that's quite often the case in with employees too. If they have the same leader, the same direct report that they had prior to the deal, you know, their life doesn't really change that much. So if you can give them that level of comfort, um, comp doesn't change, my boss doesn't change, a lot of the noise goes away. So I would I would tend to do that sooner rather than later, once you're and, and you know relatively certain that, that a deal is going to close. Do you think the um, upfront disclosure of we need a new owner is better or it's case by case uh, to being totally silent until after a deal is closed? Absolutely case by case. Quite often, if it's a, um, let's say it's a, a competitor situation, um, you wouldn't want that getting out because they'll start to poach your people if, if they're prospective buyers. So why would they pay up when they can just hire them? Um, also, if you've been in a growth mode where, let's say you've hired people in a progressive, smaller entrepreneurial organization away from big, staid, you know, slow pub co's, on, on the premise that they're going to have some freedom and the, and the chance to create something. If you enter into a sale process and you've got that kind of management mix, they may be very unhappy about having left um, a big situation and then having to roll back one, into one uh, almost immediately. So case by case for sure. Great advice. Uh, what other advice do you have for owners that are contemplating their exit? You know, some maybe some best practices or some things you've seen that have really helped owners in the short term and the long term. I think the the things that would spring to mind there would be really uh, focusing on normalizations and building your historical EBITDA to a level that uh, pro formas any acquisitions you've done, any uh, you know, business lines that you've added, and really working back through that history so that you understand your business. People get too fixated on, well, I got four times my EBITDA or six times my EBITDA, and, and less on the big number, which is the actual EBITDA itself. So if you can work hard on that, uh, I think that's step one. Step two is really focusing hard on what the year ahead represents. So if you're not doing a fulsome budgeting process or a three or five year model, you should start doing one. I recall, you know, the board chairman at Flint used to tell me my job as chief financial officer or CFO didn't stand for chief financial officer. It stood for chief forecasting officer. So knowing where you're going tomorrow will create value for you because that's really what the buyer is going to be focused on. They'll send in their you know, third-party accounting guys to, to vet history and tick and bop what happened yesterday. But the decision makers are going to look at what's going to happen uh, tomorrow. And then I think the third thing would be really spending time on the customer base in the addressable market so that you have a clear path to what's going to support the growth you put into your forecast. So if I'm going to you know, broaden my customer base by adding three key master service agreements, here are the particular companies I'm going after. You know, Maybe it's three out of ten, so I don't have to hit on 100% to reach that growth profile. And really having concrete steps that you can demonstrate you have the people and equipment and support to execute on uh, will really give that buyer confidence. So those would be the three things I'd focus on. And how 
about your you know your experience in private equity and deploying capital? What would you say to owners that are you know contemplating should I should I do a private equity deal or should I just sell 100%? Uh, you know, where where would you tend to advise those owners on how private equity firms could either be a good fit or maybe not a good fit? I think you want to recognize firstly that there are many fish in that sea of private equity players and they all have different strengths. So you want to find someone that's going to be a true partner to you. If if you're going to roll over your equity position on the premise that their capital and expertise and connections are going to support growth, you're taking a bet on them just like they're taking a bet on you. So you need to do as much due diligence on the private equity firm as they're doing on your business. So get some uh, references from previous investments they've done, talk to entrepreneurs that they exited with, as well as people that didn't make it to the final cut um, and exited from an employment perspective before the the, the exit was engineered. So I, I would go through all those steps. Um, and then I would think, you know, the real question is, can I make more selling 100% today or can I make more by taking somebody else's capital, owning a smaller chunk of what ends up being a bigger pie, and realize more value that way, as well as making my own life better? So maybe it's a question of taking a little bit of, of risk capital off the table now, deal with some personal financial things you want to deal with, and then you've got a, a, a ton of freedom and a balance sheet that allows you to pursue those growth options you really want to pursue. Because that's where the fun begins. You know, if you've got a vision for growth and private equity capital can get you to that vision, yeah, there's nothing better. Yeah. Uh, anything else you'd like to share with our listeners about either, you know, the role of a CFO and, and the importance of a CFO, the, uh, the role of private equity or the importance of a board? Any advice that you have? I think the uh, the most important advice I'd give anybody in business, whether they're looking at doing transactions, uh, being a CFO and dealing with a board or, or anything, is really you want one version of the truth in your numbers. So if, you've, if you're building a forecast and you're working historicals into it, it's the same numbers that you have in your external financials and your internal financial reporting. So you're not trying to monkey around with different versions of history. You may have different versions of the future based on levels of investment or different businesses you enter into. Um, but, you know, really, everybody understands the numbers the same way, whether it's ops or the private equity guys you want to bring to the table or the board. Because you spend too much time working through, well, I adjusted this or I adjusted that or, you know, I've taken this out of cost of sales and moved it in, in, into uh, G&A. Uh, just don't do it. Just have one version for everybody. I think the other thing I would say is um, if you plan properly, there's no reason to be scared of M&A. Lots of people you know, buy into this that 80% of, of M&A deals fail. But if, if you've used due diligence to really develop um, an execution plan, rather than just using it as a vetting process on history, your chances of success go way up. And finally, as a as a CFO, spend as much time as you can in operations. You know, one of the reasons I left uh, being a CFO of a public company is the job became more about uh, SOCs and IFRS and technical 
accounting detail and less about building the business and helping operations people succeed. And I think uh, that's really the joy of being a CFO is being fully conversant in what's happening in the operations and doing the things at the finance level that support uh, what goes on in whatever your field is. Yeah. So what led you to start uh, Corrosion and Abrasion Solutions? How did that come about? Well, um, in our private equity world, uh, we we looked at a number of different sectors that would have gone into our next fund had we done another fund. But uh, rules changed relative to private equity in Canada, so we elected not to pursue a, a fourth fund for Northern Plains. And I hate to see a good idea go to waste, so I, I started Corrosion and Abrasion Solutions myself uh, with some partners in the theory that it's a sector that has a lot of uh, mom and pops that are not meeting market requirements for in, uh, investment in technology uh, capacity and providing a full professional service to the industrial customer that uses it. Much like Flint provided that for the uh, construction sector, we see it at a different level in a subcontract service like coatings and blasting. Um, and the ability or inability of industrial owners to manage their corrosion problems, um, that, that we can consolidate that sector in the same way uh, and provide a more fulsome, comprehensive uh, corrosion management service to the customers we want to provide it to. So it's, you know, it's got the macro features in terms of, of industry spend. It's got the ownership features within a mom-and-pop-oriented uh, market. Uh, and it's got the profitability and market share uh, gain that you can get by performing consolidation that uh, would lead us to any kind of private equity investment. And, and in your role um, there in doing acquisitions, do you look for them independently? Do you uh, work with outside advisors? How does that how's that working for you now that you have all of this um, experience yourself? Right now, the contacts uh, have come primarily through our operations people, so their word of mouth, which typically works best for us. There have been a few we've seen from advisors, uh, but they, we haven't closed on any that have been uh, presented to us by outside advisors. Nothing against that process, but um, when you're in a, in a bidding situation, uh, typically you don't have the same level of bargain you get uh, when you're sole sourcing. And at this stage, in our formative um, track over the first year of operation, it's been more um, financially beneficial for us to to go out and sole source them, where we're really the only uh, game in town. That's always the best way. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> if you could do it, right? So uh, great. Well, Terry, you know, I really appreciate you sharing your expertise and your experience with our audience. Uh, if if any of our listeners have an interest in contacting you, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Email is the best way to contact me, and uh, my email is terry.freeman at casltd.ca. Great, and that's also going to be up on the Divestopedia website along with uh, Terry's bio and a transcript of this podcast. So thanks so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to us, the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. My name is Noah Rosenfarb. I'm the author of Exit, Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise, and I'm a longtime counselor to business owners seeking advice on how to get the best exit. So uh, thanks so much again for listening, and we'll hear you again and speak with you again soon. Uh, 
all of our listeners, don't forget to rate us on iTunes and leave your feedback there. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.